This episode is sponsored by DigitalOcean. I use DigitalOcean to host a side project, and I'm starting to move the hosting for my blog and this podcast off their current hosting solution to DigitalOcean. With a large selection of one-click apps, from the basics of the LAMP stack, to Ghost and WordPress for blogs, to pre-set up Docker host images, with droplets that can spin up in 55 seconds, the ability to manage SSH keys for remote access, and more, DigitalOcean makes it super easy to get your project up and running. With the ability to easily add team members, use their API to scale out your applications, and have droplets in data centers around the world, DigitalOcean is ready to take on your larger projects as well. Have a question on how to set something up with DigitalOcean? DigitalOcean has a strong community around creating documentation and tutorials as well to get you set up and running quickly. New users can get up and running on DigitalOcean for free using promo code GEEKRY, all cap, to get $10 worth of credit when you get started. This episode is sponsored by PurelyFunctional.tv. Have you been thinking about learning Clojure but don't know where to start? Would you like a fun introduction to Clojure that guides you through the difficulties of learning new concepts? Would you like to learn the fundamentals of Clojure without spending hours wading through blog post tutorials? Try the interactive courses at PurelyFunctional.tv. They teach you Clojure quickly and thoroughly using animations, exercises, and screencasts. The courses build good fundamentals and guide you to develop deep skills with the Clojure language and libraries. You can get a 25% discount by using the link purelyfunctional.tv. Proctor here with some conference announcements before we get into this episode. First up is ElixirConf 2015, which is coming up this weekend on the 2nd and 3rd of October, with the day of workshops the day before on the 1st of October down in Austin, Texas. You can still register for the two-day, two-track conference, or add the optional one day of training on October 1st. But hurry, training classes are filling up. Breakfast, lunch, and Wi-Fi are provided at the conference. With over 28 speakers and 200 attendees at the conference, and keynote speakers including past guests Jose Valim and Jessica Kerr, you don't want to miss this opportunity. To find out more and to register, visit www.elixirconf.com. Chicago Erling is also coming up on the 10th of October. The format for this year is a bit special. Instead of a conference, it will run as a one-day Erling workshop in the heart of Chicago. It will have two tracks, Essentials, led by Fred Herbert and past guest of the podcast Martin Logan, and an IoT app build-out track led by seasoned web-scale engineers Brian Troutwine and Garrett Smith. The goal of Chicago Erling is to keep it interesting and super affordable. Early bird registration is $49 and full price is $69. In addition to Chicago Erling, City Code Chicago will be taking place on the 9th of October, the day before Chicago Erling. City Code Chicago is a one-day immersive technology conference for programmers to spark creativity and innovation that invites brilliant speakers from Chicago and around the country to share important ideas and let those flame into deeper exchange with you involved in the discussion. This year's City Code Chicago will be at the world-famous Second City Theater, this small venue designed for improv theater bring speaker and audience together. There's one track, so everyone shares and contributes to the same experience. Join them on Friday, October 9th, 2015, to feed and invigorate your inner geek. Next up is Codemesh.io. Codemesh London is the European conference for alternative technologies and programming languages. It takes place on the 3rd and 4th of November, with a tutorials day on the 2nd of November, and Codemesh brings together a wide range of alternative technologies and programming language and the wonderful, crazy people who use them to solve real-world problems in the software industry. Expect code-heavy talks from over 50 speakers, including Sir Tony Hoare, creator of the Quicksort algorithm, co-designer of Haskell John Hughes, 
the co-inventors of Erling, Joel Armstrong and Robert Verding, Don Syme, creator of F-Sharp, co-inventor of Julia, Stefan Karpinski, Evan Zablicki, designer of Elm, core team members of the Hack and Rust languages, and many more. Use code FNGeekery10 for a 10% discount on the two days of conference. Then, on the 5th of November, Recon will be taking place in San Francisco. Recon is a two-day developer conference that brings together academia and industry to discuss a variety of distributed computing topics ranging from architecting, deploying, and developing NoSQL and distributed applications. Listeners can use the code SALAND100, that's S-A-L-A-N-D-1-0-0, to get a $100 discount when you register. On November 9th and 10th, Midwest.io will take place in Kansas City. Midwest.io is a two-day conference bringing together 300 developers for an eclectic collection of talks covering the latest trends, best practices, and research in the field of computing. The conference is in its second year, and they are excited to build upon the success they had in 2014 with attendance from 70 companies. Tickets are $249, and they will be having a Twitter contest giving away a free ticket in the next two weeks if you follow Midwest.io on Twitter to participate. Visit www.midwest.io to find out more. And then, coming up in February 18th and 19th in Krakow, Lambda Days will be taking place. Registration is not yet open as of release of this episode, but the call for papers is open and will continue through December 1st. Visit lambdadays.org to submit your talk proposal. And if you know of any other conferences around functional programming, email contact at functionalgeekery.com and I will be happy to announce them. Lastly, if you're enjoying Functional Geekery, please help spread the word. If you would leave a rating and reviews on iTunes, or your favorite podcast directory, or even share your favorite episodes on social media, I need your help to spread the word about Functional Geekery. If there are any guests or topics you want, please reach out and I will put them on my notes for future episode ideas. Thank you for listening, and for all your support. Welcome to Functional Geekery. I'm Rose Proctor, and this week with us we have Tom Stewart. Tom, would you mind telling everyone a little bit about yourself? Hey, well, my name's Tom. I live in London. I'm a software engineer and a computer scientist. I do a bunch of stuff, mostly working in in Ruby and on web applications at the moment, but I'm also extremely interested in computer science and functional programming and all that kind of stuff. So I'm very excited to be here today and to get to talk to you about those things. So computer scientist, does that mean you actually have a formal background in computer science or is that just something you've picked up interest in and have taken on learning of your own accord? It's a combination of those things. My undergraduate degree is in mathematics and like uh, discrete mathematics and computer science stuff. So I already had some kind of academic background in computer science related mathematics. And then I was a PhD student at the University of Cambridge for three years studying. It was in the programming language research group. So that was working on things like compilers and interpreters and type systems and some of the more theoretical side of computer science. So I've spent a fair amount of time drawing lambdas on whiteboards. So I assume that that means that I'm allowed to say that I'm a computer scientist. Although the reality of it is that my day job mostly consists of helping people to, you know, write software and talk about software and figure out how to solve problems and how to, you know, make sure that their code isn't full of bugs and stuff like that. So it's not, um, I'm not a full on all computer science all the time, but certainly in my own time, I do a lot of reading and thinking and talking to people in pubs about computer science. So hopefully that qualifies me to use that term. I would say it would. Great. And one of the things that 
I always question computer science about is because you don't hear many people actually refer to themselves as a computer scientist anymore. It's more mainly I'm a developer or I'm a developer with this language. And when I talk to people, I don't hear them talk about I'm a computer scientist. I might hear I have a computer science degree, but I'm a business software developer kind of thing. So it's always interesting to hear how people kind of describe themselves and their stance on why they pick those terms that they do. Right. Well, it may be. <laughs> I hadn't even thought about uh, using that word to describe myself, but it possibly says more about how I perceive myself than uh, than what I really am. Perhaps is a little bit grandiose to describe myself in that way, but it certainly is true that I spend a lot of time thinking about computer sciencey things, and it has increasingly become a kind of thread that has connected together all of the different things that I've done over the last few years. Like I've I've come to accept that. I have an interest in things that aren't necessarily like I'm never going to be the person who releases some amazing asynchronous JavaScript framework or something like I'm not that's not really where my interests lie. I'm much happier when I'm fiddling around playing right at the low level and thinking about the mathematics and the abstractions and the, the formalisms of understanding what is going on with computers and formal systems and stuff like that. And so even when, even when I have just spent a month of my life building a, a web application and when I probably should be saying that I'm a, just a, a web developer, I've still been, when I go home, I'm still thinking about, you know, the Lambda calculus and stuff. So yeah, I mean, it is, um, I guess not very many people are legitimately computer scientists in the world, apart from people who actually have real research careers but i think that the number of people who are in that position is probably dwarfed by the number of people who just go to work every day and sit in front of a computer and and type code you know but in a way aren't we all computer scientists maybe that's fine <laughs> and again i would see it as that's your interest that's where your your excitement lies is in understanding those kinds of things down at the sciencey level of how do these things work in the, between the science and the mathematics of computers but you may not be able to get to do that at your job. So you do a web developer, but at heart, you're really a computer scientist. That's right. And I mean, I think it's, yeah, I think a lot of people who work just in the software development industry probably have some, to some degree, are interested in the way that things work and, and sort of understanding how things are put together and why they work in the way that they do. And I just, I feel fortunate that I've had the opportunity to have a kind of, I suppose, a slightly more academic background where I was able to learn a lot of mathematics and stuff like that. And so that means that when I think about the way that things work and when I get excited about the way that things work, it's in a slightly more mathematical way as opposed to necessarily just spending a long time hacking on code. I'll, I'll tend to sort of spend a long time playing around with... I, I've, I've wasted many hundreds of hours just kind of building little programming languages or little compilers or interpreters or little translators or little you know little computational experiments that probably don't have very much value to anyone but i find them very satisfying because they give me some kind of grasp on the sort of the abstract structure of what's going on in computation and that stuff never really loses its appeal for me and i love you know people that i know are possibly a bit sick of hearing me talk to them about the more theoretical side of computation and uh things like that but yeah, I get a lot of fun and joy out of it. And when you do have one of those days where you're just battling the computer and trying to justify why you've chosen this career for yourself, it's nice to be able to think about the cool, fun stuff that underlies it all. And some of that theoretical stuff is exactly why I was wanting to get you on the podcast with your book, Understanding Computation. 
Before we get to that quite yet, though, I'd like to give you a little bit of chance to elaborate a little bit about your PhD and just the background that that was before we kind of get into understanding computation and just kind of see where that thread started following from. Oh, okay. Well, first, up front, I should clarify that while I did spend three years studying for a PhD, I have not, in fact, graduated yet. still have about 75% of a thesis on my hard drive, so I have yet to submit that and pass my Viva and stuff, so I don't want that to be a, a lie of a mission. But given that, I spent a few years... Um, I didn't really know exactly what I wanted to study. I just knew that I was very, I knew that I had this feeling that I was very interested in the sort of formal underpinnings of what was happening with computers. I'm someone who was lucky enough to be exposed to computer programming at a very young age. So from as for as long as I can remember, we always had some kind of home computer around the house. And so even when I was a tiny kid, I was always writing silly programs to draw colors on the screen and print out my name and stuff like that. And so it's something that I've always been, you know, there was no point in my life when I consciously made a choice that I was going to learn to write programs or that I wanted to be a, a software engineer as a career. It's just something that has kind of naturally been part of my life. And so when I decided that I wanted to study that at a higher level, I just kind of fell into, you know, I went to I went to the University of Cambridge, I met with some people there, I met someone who was interested in supervising me. And then one thing led to another. And before I knew it, I was a graduate student in computer science. And I still didn't really have a very good plan for what I wanted to study. And in the time that I spent there, I, I'd intentionally joined a research group that was sort of halfway between the extremely theoretical. So at the University of Cambridge Computer Laboratory, they have a theory research group who do what seems to me to be incredibly abstract and hardcore mathematics that I could watch from a distance and understand about 40 to 50% of, but I didn't really feel like I was able to go full on theoretical computer science. But by the same token, they have other people there who do extremely practical research with things like computer vision and robotics and operating systems. And that stuff has never interested me quite as much as programming languages and computer programs in their own right. So I, I ended up falling into this research group that was kind of not a compromise at all, but just in the right point on the spectrum for me, which was thinking about things like type systems and compiler optimizations and static analysis and stuff like that, which for me felt like a nice combination of formal systems and mathematical reasoning. But while at the same time, you know, being directly motivated by things like we want to be able to tell when programs have a particular property so that we can perform this transformation on them, or we want to know when it's possible to parallelize this operation, or, or you know, we want to know, want to be able to reason about the, the space usage or the aliasing behavior in this program or something like that. So I had a huge amount of fun there, and it was really an incredible experience because I had never really had the opportunity to be in a place that was full of incredibly smart computer science -y people before. And so it was just an amazing whirlwind of just being able to constantly learn from people. And I was constantly reading and going to lots of lectures and giving talks and attending talks. And I gradually became more and more interested in type systems and optimizing compilers. And in fact, I ended up, one of the best things I ended up doing at Cambridge, but also one of the factors in me failing to graduate in a timely manner is that I ended up spending a lot of my time doing teaching. I quite quickly got into doing teaching undergraduates, so supervising undergraduates and helping them with their undergraduate study. 
and then I quickly sort of graduated into actually lecturing some courses for a couple of years. I lectured some final year undergraduate courses on optimizing compilers. And that was, it was a, it was a sort of an amazing learning experience, really. I hesitate to say more so than all of the academic stuff that I learned, because it was really the challenge of trying to firstly, fully understand. I definitely had gaps in my own understanding of all of the mathematical detail of how compiler optimizations worked. And I really had to close all of those gaps in my understanding until I got to the point where I felt capable of teaching that material. And then having to produce, I think it was a, a course of 16 lectures on optimizing compilers. And so for me to do 16 one-hour lectures of material really forced me to think about how to communicate that stuff to people and how is it that people gain an understanding of things and how can I try to break this stuff down in a way that will be meaningful to people. And so I, in addition to the straightforwardly scientific stuff that I learned as part of doing that, I also feel like I learned a lot about how people understand ideas and how to communicate ideas to people. I was terrible when I began doing it, but I think by the time I'd finished doing it in the second year and had done a lot of this face-to-face -face undergraduate teaching as well, it really helped me to understand how that stuff worked. So I learned a lot about teaching and I also learned a lot about type systems and my 75% complete PhD thesis is on substructural type systems. So trying to find ways to allow type systems to track more information about the usage of values in programs. So, so like linear type systems are one example of that. And I was studying something called quasi-linear type systems. So just trying to figure out how to augment conventional Hindley-Milner type systems to get them to track things like usage of if a value is being consumed in more than one place, then you want to outlaw that because you don't want to have to duplicate values or allow aliasing to occur and things like that. So I did get quite a long way with that. I came up with a load of formalisms and I implemented them in the OCaml compiler. So I have a whole load of semi-interesting stuff on my hard drive, but I just, after three years, my funding ran out and I needed to get a job and I sort of told myself that I would be able to finish it evenings and weekends. But the reality is, as soon as you come out of the university environment and you're having to go to work every day and worry about paying rent and stuff, it becomes quite easy to become distracted by real life and not quite so easy to sit down and actually finish writing a PhD thesis. But I still think about it a lot and I feel like I really got what I wanted out of that experience, which is that now I have a much better grounding in the actual, you know, theoretical basis of programming language theory and compilers and interpreters and all of that stuff, you know, all, all of the kind of language theory and computation theory that I find very interesting. And it makes me feel like I'm better able to operate in this world we live in where actually it seems like there are always new programming languages coming out and those programming languages have increasingly exotic features and increasingly exotic type systems and stuff like that. And so I'm kind of glad that I have this background to fall back on where I can look at something like say rust and recognize a lot of things that i feel like i learned and made you know in the past and say oh you know now those kinds of things that i was thinking about and playing with back when i was trying to write research papers and trying to get a phd thesis together have actually begun to appear in the real world so now if i want a system that works that way uh, that has you know a borrow checker i can just go download rust and use it and there's no the onus is no longer on me to try and build tools like that that's really interesting because I didn't even realize you had a background with OCaml. My familiarity with you was from the Ruby community and your book, Understanding Computation. And with your teaching and everything as well, I kind of can see that thread of where writing a book might be coming out of as well, or at least having that teaching experience kind of gave you that insight of what it takes to write a good teaching book, theoretically. 
So what actually led you to actually write the book, Understanding Computation? And maybe before that, do you want to give a pitch about the book and what that basic premise is for anybody who hasn't heard of it? Uh, yeah, sure. A pitch. Okay. Well, no, I can certainly describe what it is, which is that it's a book published by O'Reilly. It came out a couple of years ago now. The basic premise of it is to try to explain some fundamental ideas about computer science that I think are interesting and fundamentally accessible to anyone who knows things about computers. So anyone who is a programmer, for example, I think there are various ideas that they should be able to understand. And I found it frustrating when I was trying to, well, a combination of when I was trying to learn those ideas and when I was trying to teach those ideas to undergraduates, I found it quite frustrating that a lot of the ideas were presented in an exclusively mathematical way, which a lot of people found very difficult to understand and which in the past I have found difficult to understand. So the book, to come back to the point, the book is trying to use a practical programming language, which for the purpose of the book was Ruby, but could just as well have been Python or JavaScript or whatever. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't really rely on any features of Ruby other than the fact that it's a fairly simple language to read and for people to understand. So I use Ruby to explain what I hope is a fairly logical series of ideas from theoretical computer science that are all related to computation theory. The first half of the book is talking about building up programs and machines. So it talks about things like the formal semantics of languages, so like operational or denotational semantics. It talks about finite state machines, you know, deterministic and non-deterministic finite automata working its way up to pushdown automata and then up to Turing machines, and then introducing the lambda calculus. And then the second half of the book goes into a bit more detail about the application and consequences of those ideas. So it ends up talking about computational universality and the halting problem and Rice's theorem. And it talks a little bit about type systems and sort of static analysis and all those. Basically, it's a bit of a brain dump of all the things that I think are fun and interesting. And I have tried to explain them in a way that I hope is accessible to someone who is just a self-taught computer programmer. That would have been a better pitch. You know, the stuff from computer science that I think is fun and interesting explained in a way that I hope an average computer programmer without a mathematical background would be able to understand. Yeah, I really enjoyed the book when I got it and read it because it was relatively close to when it had been coming out. And I know I had a couple of other coworkers who gave it high praise. And part of what really made it exciting to me was I had the background in CS as well. And so I was exposed to the state machines and Turing machines and knowledge like that, that you kind of cover in the book. And where I got really excited was all the lambda calculus, because you go in and went pretty deep into building up the lambda calculus. And you actually did it from scratch, which was pretty impressive as well, using Ruby's notation of lambdas, but to give you another lambda. But it was a way that I know that the people that I worked with, some of them didn't even have computer science backgrounds, and they thought it was a great introduction and tutorial of how that works. Well, that's really great to hear. I mean, obviously, based on the slightly clumsy pitch I just gave, that was my intended audience. And it is really, really gratifying to hear either from or to hear of people who have found it accessible and interesting. In particular, I think that the Lambda Calculus is one of those things that it's easy to say that it's simple. You know, it's easy to say the Lambda Calculus is a very, in some way, it is the simplest useful programming language that you can make. It captures the notion of, well, obviously it captures the notion of a function very nicely. And 
I think that a lot of people could stand to benefit from seeing that simplicity and that clarity. But it's, it, you know, if you buy, if you go to Amazon and you search for Lambda Calculus and you try to buy a book that has Lambda Calculus in the title, I don't think you're likely to come up with anything that is actually going to be accessible to a regular programmer. But there shouldn't be, you know, none of the ideas in, well, certainly the Lambda Calculus you can just explain on the back of a napkin. And then if you want to explain the possibly more interesting issue of why is the Lambda Calculus an interesting game that you can play with symbols? You know, if you, if you present it in that way and say the Lambda Calculus is just these few simple rules and a couple of simple, uh, you know, syntactic constructors, what is relevant and interesting about that? And I try to do that in the book a little bit. Like you said, I actually do it kind of twice. I First, I talk about using, yeah, writing programs in Ruby in a constrained way so that you're only constructing lambdas, which Ruby calls procs. You're only constructing procs and invoking them. So that would be the equivalent of writing a program in JavaScript by only making a function and then calling a function. So I go through that and try to demonstrate things like church encodings of Booleans and church numerals, and then talk a little bit about things like pairs and lists and other data structures and infinite streams and stuff like that, and try to give a bit of a flavor of, oh, isn't it surprising that you can build all of these, not only control flow, but also data structures when all you can do is create a lambda and it can't have anything inside it apart from other lambdas. It feels like there should be something at the bottom of that. But in practice, of course, that's more than enough to be getting on with. And then once I show that, I then do a slightly separate thing of saying, having introduced the idea of operational semantics earlier in the book, I then show how to implement, you know, essentially an interpreter for the lambda calculus. So to say, we can see that these rules about how to evaluate these expressions must be very straightforward. So let's actually implement them and be able to evaluate abstract syntax trees that represent lambda calculus expressions. And I never quite go the whole way and re-implement all of the stuff that I've implemented natively in Ruby, like re-implement re it all with these explicit abstract syntax trees. But I hope that by touching on all those things, I try to paint a bit of a picture, which is that this is a very simple programming language, and yet it provides all of the machinery that you need. And I touch on, there's a whole chapter in the book where I try to touch on lots of different universal systems. And, and part of what I wanted to convey in that chapter was the idea that computation is some kind of slightly mysterious property of the universe that we don't have that good a grasp on and that it actually it, you know it crops up in all of these systems you know the prize that we felt in 1936 when Turing came up with the same result you know he came up with a system that was equivalent to the system that you know the church had come up with and it's very surprising that all of these very simple systems have this kind of strange equivalence and this strange ability to do complicated things even when the systems themselves are not very complicated and i think part of that feeling of surprise was i was sort of reminded of it when i read that massive book that stephen wolfram published about cellular automata and he has a lot of material in that book that's riffing on the same idea that's saying like you know what's going on here what you know why are all of these incredibly simple systems able to produce this kind of complex behavior and so i i wanted to try and communicate a little bit of that to people who might not ever have had the opportunity to work with a system which didn't have a huge amount of complexity built into it in the first place like there's nothing very intuitively surprising about the fact that you can build a complicated system out of Java or Objective-C running on iOS or whatever, because it takes a massive amount of investment of energy to construct those systems and to learn about them. And so I think it's genuinely surprising and interesting that something like the Lambda Calculus has such an inherent, for something that's so beautiful and simple, it does have this real kind of expressive power and it really captures something 
about something <laughs> and I can't be very much more specific than that but I tried in the book I tried to communicate that a little bit and hopefully when you talk about people who didn't have a computer science background at all if they were able to read the book and understand the majority of the stuff that's in there I hope they've managed to come away with a sense of like oh there's something interesting going on here that I maybe can't quite see because you know I as the author of that book don't really know any more about it than anyone else I don't know what the mysterious thing that's going on with computation is but I do really like to play with it and to think about it and to look at it from different angles so I'd be very happy if I felt that I'd you know helped anyone else to be able to look at that thing from different angles and to think about it too. And I guess part of that simplicity and the fact that they all kind of sprung into mind across three or four different people at about the same time with the Turing machine and the church's lambda calculus. And I believe there was even another one around that time as well that kind of a couple of people came out and said, yeah, these are all equivalent. They're all right. None of them is any more right than the other. Is that part of what led you to actually include the lambda calculus in that? Because I know a lot of books kind of tend to shy away from the lambda calculus and go straight Turing and state machines generally when they start out in the finite automata and all that when you're kind of getting the intro to computer science because that's I guess that's generally how we think about it with the von Neumann architecture machines that we have but is that simplicity and that kind of like realization that everything is kind of tied together at a level part of what enticed you to put the lambda calculus in or was there something else driving that as well? I think that was definitely part of it, but fundamentally, I just had a different agenda. I didn't. <laughs> it was an, it, you know, it was interesting talking to O'Reilly about this book because most of the books that O'Reilly publish, I would say almost all of the books they publish, are fairly vocational in their character. So, there, if you have a job as a PHP developer and you instead want to become a Python developer or whatever it is, then O'Reilly is the kind of publisher that you go to to buy a book that will tell you how to program in Python so that you can become a Python developer. And in the conversations I had with them about my book, I was <laughs> I was sort of at pains to say to them, look, this is not going to be one of those books that is necessarily going to get people a better job. You know, it's not, it's not going to teach you about how to build user interface components in React so that you can go and get a job as a React developer. Like this is this book is really about I wasn't intending to teach people anything especially practical. It was just supposed to satisfy curiosity. And so because I didn't have that constraint of, well, you know, I better make sure that this all culminates in, to use your example, you know, it culminates in an, in an explanation of the von Neumann architecture, which allows people to, I don't know, to write kernel device drivers or something like that just wasn't the way that I was thinking about it. I had a very specific list of things that I wanted to address. And among those things were firstly, computational universality. So I needed like you said, several different people around the same time came up with, you know, surprisingly equivalent ideas about how to express the notion of a computation. And I wanted to include that, you know, I did want to wave my hand at all of those systems. I mean, I don't go into any of them in, in, in very much detail, but I wanted to be able to say, you know, isn't it interesting that we have the Lambda calculus and we have partial recursive functions and we have Turing machines, obviously, and we have the SKI combinator calculus, and we have tag systems and cyclic tag systems and cellular automata, you know, Conway's Game of Life or Wolfram's Rule 110 and all of these different systems. And I wanted to make that kind of point, but I was also building up towards making some other points. I wanted to talk about 
undecidability. You know, I wanted to look at the church Turing thesis or at least be able to allude to what that means. And so to be able to substantiate the claim of the church Turing thesis, you need to really have more than one model of computation to be able to talk about. You know, you need to say, because part of the circumstantial evidence for the church Turing thesis, of course, is that you do have this kind of notion of universality, that you do have all of these systems that are all computationally equivalent. And that makes you suspect fairly strongly that you've managed to capture the notion of algorithm, I suppose. And I wanted to talk about, I mentioned 1936 earlier, I think that was also the year that Gödel, you know, had his realisation about the limitations of mathematics. And so I wanted to talk specifically about the halting problem and Rice's theorem and all of the issues around that to do with like, why is being a computer programmer sometimes so painful and annoying? You know, why do we have these machines whose behavior is in some sense intractable? And so that it felt like having the Lambda calculus to fall back on was useful because it's more obvious to people that the Lambda calculus is it looks like a program. It feels like, oh, this is just, I mean, particularly if you've done any if you've ever written a program in, you know, ML or OCaml or I suppose Haskell or any other sort of fairly or comparatively minimal functional programming language, you don't have to squint very hard to say, oh, the Lambda calculus looks a bit like that. And so to be able to talk about Lambda calculus programs or the serialization of a Lambda calculus program and say, well, we could represent a Lambda calculus program as a big number. And, you know, all of the stuff that both Gödel and Turing went to great lengths to talk about in their separate discussions of this principle. I don't think you necessarily need to do quite so much mathematical gymnastics to be able to talk about, well, the Lambda calculus is basically a programming language. We can write down these programs and then those programs are just a sequence of symbols and then that's just a number and then you can think of that as being input to another program and then you don't need very many steps before suddenly you're talking semi-convincingly about the halting problem or about Gödel's second incompleteness theorem. So that was the book was interesting in that I really, I kind of needed to work backwards from my goals because my goals were to talk about a few of these things that I think are interesting. And I also wanted to talk a little bit about type systems. I wanted to talk about abstract interpretation as well, which I only briefly managed to do at the end of the book. But I had all of these kind of ideas swirling around in my head about computational universality and undecidability and the notion of a program as an object that can be analyzed and studied, because I think a lot of people who write programs may not ever have learned to think of them in that way. It's very easy to, I certainly learned programming by just fiddling around with a computer and making mistakes and learning, you know, it's a very organic process. And I think that that process can sometimes mask the fundamental reality of what you're doing, which is constructing an extremely well-defined mathematical object when you write a computer program. And so I wanted to talk about how that mathematical object can be analyzed and how you can manipulate abstractions of that program. So in the case of type systems, you know, the way that you can convert a program on values into a program on types, and then various questions about the program on values, which are undecidable, suddenly become decidable in the program on types. And then you can kind of jump back across that gap when you make decisions about your program on types that implies something about your program on values. And it felt like all of that was to work back from that point I wanted to make about the mathematical nature of the programs we construct, I really needed to step through quite a lot of, you know, when I unwound all of my assumptions in those thoughts, I realized that I had to write the first half of a book just talking about what do I even mean by the word semantics or what does it mean to talk about something being computed. And so out of that fell all of the stuff to do with finite state machines and 
you know, operational semantics and all of that kind of stuff. So in a way, the book was quite easy to write because I just had to kind of bottom out this list of assumptions until I got to the assumption that you knew how to write a computer program, which it turns out is an extremely useful thing to be able to assume because anyone who is a working programmer has actually got a massive amount of tacit knowledge about all of the things I want them to understand. It's just that they have never had it communicated to them in a way that exploited that tacit understanding. If you talk to someone in a mathematical way and you ask them to look at an explanation that speaks about Greek symbols and deduction rules and proofs and things like that, they will immediately tune out. But when I took apart all of the things that you actually need to understood to understand to be able to appreciate something like the halting problem or Rice's theorem or the way that type systems work or something, I thought, and it turned out, I think that it was possible to construct an explanation of that that relies only on the idea that there's a thing called a computer and we can type stuff into it and make it do things. So I don't know if I managed to do that successfully, but to the extent that I succeeded at all, I was driven to mention all of those things really just by the specific goal that I had in mind, which I was very lucky to be able to pursue without having to think about, is this necessarily going to get someone an extra 20 grand a year job, which it probably won't, but I hope that people enjoy it anyway. So that kind of brings a lot of missing pieces together from what I had read and just getting your background a little further fleshed out from when I've heard you talk about the book on other podcasts and appearances and talks that you've talked about. And because, again, as I mentioned be beginning, was that I primarily knew you in the Ruby community because that's mainly the conferences I had seen your talks around. And so with that, because I didn't even realize you kind of had the OCaml background as well, which is intriguing and I might like to talk about a little bit towards the end if we have some time. But just with the Ruby experience, because I know that's not necessarily something that's considered a functional language, but it does have its hints of the ability of being able to do functional kinds of stuff in it with its blocks and procs and lambdas and whatnot with being able to have like things like the map and reduce and enumerable and some of those basic things that you think about at a fundamental level across functional programming languages, even if it may not have the full on broader applicability of a functional programming language. How did you feel that reception coming into a language that isn't necessarily known to be functional, but showing you can pull off all these functional tactics in it? Because I know you've also done a couple of other talks that I believe it was the Giant Robots podcast you were just on relatively recently where you were talking about your Mana tutorial, and that was something you wanted to throw in the book, but it wouldn't quite fit in. So you've got this, like, all these notes of things that are kind of functional in nature that don't necessarily fit in with the community you're kind of popular around, I should say. Correct me if I'm wrong on that, but how do you find that reception there in bringing those ideas and the willingness to have those ideas picked up and adopted in a community that's not necessarily known for being a strong functional language? Well, one of the things, it is unusual to be trying to do this stuff in Ruby, but one of the reasons why I think I have had any interest at all is that the Ruby community is now, well, certainly larger than it used to be. You know, it encompasses a lot of people. And naturally, within that group of people, there are a fair number who are quite curious. And I think that the I sort of would be so bold as to say that the Ruby community is quite curious by nature. I mean, certainly the last few, well, actually, maybe going back a couple of years, a lot of Ruby conferences that I've been to have been quite outward looking. You know, you see a lot of talks about, 
other programming languages and people saying, what can we learn from this other system or this other language or this other way of thinking about things? And so I think there are quite a lot of people in that community who are interested in, who have an awareness that there are things out there that they don't know about yet. And I think that I've been fortunate to be able to satisfy that appetite in some people to learn about things that they don't already know about. I mean, that this is the other thing about the Ruby community is that a lot of people in it are self-taught developers, which I think is a great thing. You know, there are, I mean, ultimately, I think it does all come back to Ruby on Rails. You know, the fact that Ruby on Rails was as successful as it was, has brought a lot of people into writing Ruby who probably would otherwise not have ever done it. And a lot of those people may have begun writing Ruby as, you know, they might have been, for example, maybe they got into writing web applications through writing HTML and CSS. And so they've had this very natural progression from perhaps not knowing anything technical whatsoever to teaching themselves HTML, CSS, and then teaching themselves JavaScript, and then deciding they needed to write something on the server side. And so they've learned, it usually happens in this order, that they learn Rails. And then once they've learned Rails, they realize there's a part of Rails that isn't quite Rails. It's all these other things that is the programming language that Rails is written in. And so they kind of become Ruby programmers. And so I think there are a lot of those people out there, you know, it's, it's by no means the whole Ruby community, but I think a sizable chunk of people who have got into Ruby through web development. And most of those people haven't had the privilege to sit in a university for years and, and learn about all of this stuff because they were busy living their lives and doing other things. And so I think that there are some people who are just not interested in this stuff, and that's absolutely fine. There are people outside of the Ruby community who think that it's you know, basically every time I do something, there are always people who say it's absurd that this guy is trying to do this stuff in Ruby. Like I remember when the book came out, there were quite a lot of people saying this is fairly ridiculous to try to explain these ideas from computer science in a language as loose and informal as Ruby seems like a bit of a fool's errand. And, uh, you know, people saying it, it would have been much easier and made much more sense to do it in Haskell, for example. And I think that those people are right. It would have been much easier to do in Haskell, but it also would have reached a completely different audience. And in the talks that I do and the book that I wrote, I want to reach this audience of primarily self-taught people who just feel intimidated by Haskell. I don't know that you necessarily should feel intimidated by a language like Haskell. I think it's eminently learnable. I mean, the learning curve goes pretty steep after a particular point, but I think it's entirely possible to get useful work done in a language like Haskell or OCaml or whatever without necessarily having to fully grok anything incredibly sophisticated about type systems. I think it's just a programming language that you can do stuff in, but for whatever reason, whether it's just a perception problem or whether it, there is fundamentally a difference, you know, a lot of people just will never sit down and learn Haskell or Scheme or any of these other languages that are perceived as being academic or weird or impractical. So I wanted to try and use a language that I felt would reach people who I wanted to reach. And either Ruby or Python or JavaScript seemed like an obvious choice. And out of those three, I think I enjoy writing programs in Ruby the most. So I went with that. And I think people have responded to that. Every time I go to a conference, there's always one nice person. I should stress a different person every time who comes up and says, oh, you know, I read your book and I never got a chance to learn this stuff. I never went to college or I did, but I I studied classical literature or something, and it's really fascinating. So I think there is a sort of an untapped 
or well, maybe it's tapped a bit now, but there is an appetite for this stuff in the Ruby community. And I think there are people like me, even though they are working as just software engineers day to day, they're curious and they want to know more about what is possible and how things work. So I've been, yeah, I've been extremely fortunate that people in the Ruby community have been very patient and very welcoming of the kinds of things that I want to talk about. And yeah, when I gave a talk explaining monads, which was such a, it took a real effort of will to do that because it felt like such a cliche that like I was becoming that person who was explaining monads, but I did my best to do it in a way that was not just an impersonation of the way that everyone else explained monads. You know, I spent a long time trying to design an explanation that I thought would work for the kinds of people who I was expecting to see it. And subsequently, that talk about monads has been extremely well received, or at least the people who talk to me about it say that they really liked it and that they are really happy that they now feel empowered to be able to participate in a conversation about monads without feeling like they're the poor Ruby developer who is just not allowed to think about these things. You have to sit quietly and let the Haskell people talk about it. I mean, quite whether monads per se are a thing that programmers should really be quite so animated about is a separate issue. But the fact is that it's an idea that exists in our culture as programmers. And I didn't like the idea that there were people out there thinking, oh, this sounds a little bit too Haskell-y and mathematical for me. I will just leave it. You know, I don't want people to feel like there's any part of computer science that is fundamentally inaccessible to them. So I wanted to try and open it up a little bit. And from what I can tell, there's obviously selection bias here because people by and large do not email me to tell me that they think my talks are terrible. It's mostly the people who like what I do who get in touch with me, but more than zero people have sent me a nice tweet or sent me a nice email or come up and shaken my hand at a conference and said, this was something I've always been curious about and I'm really grateful that you have been able to shine a little light on it for me. I may never use it as part of my job or, you know, I've I can't really see how the undecidability of the halting problem is necessarily going to help to make my Rails app go any faster, but I feel better now that I understand it. And that's, you know, that's all I could ask for, really. Yeah, it's one of those tutorials I try and pass around at least your blog post and say, here, if you can't at least watch the video that's embedded in it, read the transcript of the talk to a lot of other coworkers who aren't necessarily into geeking out on this stuff as much as I am. But it seems something that's approachable, even if to some extent academically incomplete, because it doesn't talk about like functor and applicative and everything, but it still gives you a good understanding of what that monad behavior and pattern actually is from the perspective of the way you build it up and use, I think, three different examples in it. That's right. Well, I was going to say one of the things that frustrated me about, and that this is a bit of a common theme is that a lot of the time in explanations, people are extremely reticent to just come out and say what they're talking about, or at least like what category of thing they're talking about. I mean, category in, in the non-mathematical sense there. You know, a lot of the explanations of things like monads will just dive straight in and they'll say, well, you know, I'm going to show you some examples of monads. And I think that I don't care very much about monads. I don't want to keep talking about them, but I just wanted to, what you said reminded me of the fact that yeah, I didn't go into a lot of detail, all of the extra detail that you mentioned there. I mean, obviously, partly that was to do with time constraints, but also it was just because I wanted to let people get some kind of grasp on like what on earth it was that people were even talking about. And some of the feedback I've had from that talk has been people who are saying, you know, this was great because 
I've read loads of these tutorials and you read the tutorial and you, you nod along with the code examples and it kind of makes sense to you and you get to the end of it and you've understood every single sentence in the explanation, but you're still not really any better off in terms of knowing if someone then stopped you on the street and said, well, you know, what kind of thing is a monad? What ontological category does a monad belong to? I think that people find it non-obvious. Like it's the kind of thing that if you don't already know the ontological category of a thing, then it's very hard, especially when it's a new category that you are not even aware of. It's very hard to classify things when you don't even know how to recognize things that are in that category. And so one of the things I wanted to do in that talk and in all the talks that I give is just to try to be as... I frequently sacrifice completeness and often I even sacrifice correctness for the sake of just trying to be as concrete as possible and say, literally, here is what I am talking about. And when I tried to talk, you know, when I've tried to talk about undecidability, for example, I've always, you know, I've tried to always be extremely concrete about like, here's an example, here's what I'm talking about, you know, could you write a program that calculates this? If you could, why would that be too good to be true? And actually just try and bring everything back to something that any normal person can look at and say, oh, yeah, I get what you're talking about there. I mean, with that Monad tutorial, I spent like the first third, it was, I was very constrained for time when I gave that talk, but I, I spent about a third of my time budget talking about stuff that was nothing to do with monads, really. I just talked about abstract data types. So I just talked about stacks and collections and none of that is particularly germane to understanding what a monad is or at least you don't learn anything about functors or applicables or any of that stuff but i thought that what it did do was to conjure up this category into which they could slot this idea that i was about to present and so quite a lot of the time i feel like i'm spending a lot of effort just trying to do that kind of work which is i'm not going to go into very much detail about the thing that you actually want to know about because i think if you want to know more and more and more about you know monads or whatever you can go and read about it but the thing that you probably can't go and read about is getting that initial sense of understanding about what the heck it is that i'm even talking about and that frustrates me a lot when i see talks that talk about more abstract or more mathematical things i feel like that's a step that gets missed very often it makes me cross because I think that your average programmer, which isn't supposed to be a, I'm not trying to use that in a derogatory sense. I'm just saying, you know, you and me and everyone we know who works as a computer programmer is able to understand a very wide range of really quite abstract concepts if they have the kind of personality that has enabled them to spend enough time bashing their head against a computer and understanding how to write a JavaScript program that doesn't break then that person has the ability to understand a lot of these more ostensibly abstract and academic concepts. It's just that the way that they're presented is so off-putting. And, and the fact that they are constantly presented in a way that presupposes an understanding of what kind of thing is being explained and, and where that is supposed to fit into your mind, um, I find that that's the largest barrier for people to understand stuff. And it is for me as well. Like I've got a lot of textbooks, which I otherwise consider to be extremely good, but the real barrier was just trying to, you start reading it and they get straight into, oh, let's talk about this, you know, pi calculus or whatever it is. And if you don't know what that thing is, if you don't know how to think about it, then it doesn't matter how much you learn about it because it's still floating free in your mind and fundamentally disconnected from anything that you actually understand, which is why when I talk to people about the Lambda calculus, I like to talk about it as just almost a game just to say, 
imagine we're playing a little game here. You know, there are just a couple of simple rules. It's a game about making strings of symbols. And here are the rules of the game. And we can apply these rules and we can make more and more strings of symbols as long as we follow these rules. And then once you've communicated that idea to someone and they have a concretion in mind, they can see, okay, I can see that there's a game here that we can play that can generate more and more of these terms. Then you can start talking about, ah, now let me tell you what these things mean. Let's come up with an interpretation or let's come up with a semantics or let's come up with some kind of evaluation strategy or whatever it is. But you need to have that foundation of actually being able to classify and characterize the concrete thing. Because if you can't, I think this is what is special about mathematicians and people who think mathematically is that they have a much, uh, they are able to conceptualize of things which are much less concrete than a regular person. And I think that that is what causes this disconnect in understanding is the fact that it's one mathematician to another, it's fine to start describing, take a set and, you know, an operation on the set that satisfies these axioms. And those two people can quite happily have that conversation. But if you're talking to a, just a regular person, you have to say to them, let's think about, you know, let's think about the positive integers under addition and, and I will explain what I mean by integers and under and addition. And then I'll, you know, I'll give you a load of examples. And then from there, we will generalize to this more abstract idea. But it's very frustrating to see people miss out that concrete stage. And so that's a long-winded justification of why I allocated my time and energy in the way that I did for that monad talk was because I wanted to talk as concretely as possible about what is it that I am trying to tell you about, what kind of thing what other things do you know that are of the same, I hesitate to say type, but you know, the same kind of thing as that. And then even if people walk away and they forget the actual monads that I presented and how to implement them and what they're useful for and all of my hand-waving justifications of why people get so excited about monads, I just really hope that they remember all the stuff I said about an abstract data type, which isn't quite right, but it's close enough to being right that those people are able to feel, oh, well, I can understand stacks and I can understand collections, so I can also, in principle, understand monads. I don't really care if that doesn't communicate the technical essence of the idea as effectively as it might, because what I want to do is just to make those people feel like they've got a box in their mind that that idea can now slot comfortably into. And then it's up to them if they want to really go ahead and learn about the reality of what monads are. And I would imagine that most people don't. They're not that interested. They just want to know where in their mind that idea will go. And so that's what I'm, you know, that's what I hope to be able to explain to them. Yeah, I appreciate the way you anchor it with the other examples and say, this is not related, but in, re in reality, it is. You've got an anchor point here that you can set in your mind to help you think about these things. And I found that useful when I try and share these things to people who haven't really ever had exposure to it. So that's one of the things I liked about your post and even the book is that anchoring in something conceptually concrete that is more foundational. So we're getting close to time and I don't want to keep you forever. So is there anything that we've missed talking about that you want to make sure that we cover? Um, I don't know. I mean, I can I could talk for an unlimited amount of time for, about these things. Um, I suppose I could say a little bit about the fact that I have these these thoughts are all unformed, but I'm trying to think of other ways to at the moment I'm trying to think about other ways to communicate this kind of stuff and also to try and make it as much of a part of my life as possible because I, d I don't want to just be, you know, I've already kind of established part of my experience of, of going and being a graduate student was to try and see whether that kind of lifestyle and that kind of career was something that would suit me. 
And I think that one of the main things that that experience taught me is that it doesn't really suit me and that I'm, for example, I'm much happier learning and teaching than I am doing research. I found doing research a very sort of lonely and difficult and frustrating experience. And as, and I always wanted to stop trying to do research and go to the library and read an amazing paper or go to the lecture theatre and try and explain something to some undergraduates. So I've sort of accepted that I'm not going to have a career as an academic, but I haven't accepted the idea that that means that I can't still engage myself in this kind of that I don't have to just resign myself to writing, you know, iOS apps or, or JavaScript apps or Ruby web apps or whatever it is. So I'm constantly trying to figure out, like, what does that mean for me in terms of the way that I spend my time? And how can I, I mean, I, I've, I've had a lot of fun writing the book and doing the conference talks that I've done. I've kind of decided to take a bit of a break from doing conferences because they're very time consuming, both in in terms of travel and in terms of the amount of time and energy it it takes to write the talks, because I find that an extremely labor intensive process. And so I'm not planning to speak at any conferences for the rest of this year. So I've, I've freed up some of my time. And so I'm trying to, I don't really have anything to say. I'm just saying that I'm interested in finding other ways to bring this kind of stuff into a more general conversation. And it may be that the listeners of your podcast may not directly be the people that I should be addressing this to, because I imagine that anyone who willingly listens to a podcast called Functional Geekery is probably already on board with the kind of stuff that I'm interested in and the kind of ways that I would like to spend my time. But I am thinking more about other ways that I can you know, should I write another book or should I try and find a way to talk about this stuff more explicitly rather than, you know, all of the talks that I give, I feel like I've had to slightly sneakily crowbar them into whatever conference I've given them at. Although people by now probably do know what to expect from me, it's always a little bit, I'm sitting there listening to the talks before mine and I'm I'm always thinking, oh, you know, why am I, these people are not going to want to hear me going on about the Futamura projections and partial evaluation and stuff that, you know, And people are very nice and it's all fine, but I'm just interested in finding ways that we can all incorporate more of this kind of thing into our lives. I mean, I'm participating in, I live in London and in London, me and some other people have started a a book club. We call it slightly grandiosely, we call it London Computation Club. So we meet every couple of weeks and we sit around and eat snacks and drink beverages. And we usually read a book, but at the moment we're just trying to figure out what to do with our time. And that's something that I really enjoy. And it's really quite enriching for me to have that outlet of being able to go and hang out with other people who, well, again, who would willingly attend an event called Computation Club. We've really enjoyed reading. So far, we've just been a book club and we've read a few books. We've read The Little Schema and we read From Nan to Tetris, Fundamentals of Computing Systems, whatever it's called. And I find that really, you know, being able to sit around and talk to people, unashamedly be talking about the more esoteric and abstract side of computation, I find very useful and fun. And I sort of wish that I could figure out a way to get more people to do that. And it may be that I just need to accept that it is forever going to be a fairly niche thing that maybe most people who work in software are not fundamentally very predisposed to be interested in how a compiler or a parser or you know any other part of a computer works or in thinking about the formal aspects of computation theory or type systems or whatever it might be. But I would really like to, to the extent that I have any ability to think about this stuff and talk about it, I would really like to figure out, you know, how can I 
the best thing about the book is that it put me in touch with a load of people and you know I wouldn't be on this podcast if I hadn't written that book written that book and so it's really nice to have done something that has in a tiny way produced a, some kind of ripples that have brought things back to me that people do now come and talk to me or send me an email or people come up to me at conferences and talk to me who would otherwise not talk to me because I've put it out there because I have said I think this is interesting and that we should be talking about it and thinking about it. And so, I mean, I don't know if I have the energy to write another full book. I am writing a little ebook at the moment about something that's not really very related to the stuff that we're talking about here. But it may be that I don't have the energy to write another. Understanding more computation might not be immediately forthcoming, but I would like to figure out, is there something, should I make a website or should I, well, I'm not going to start a podcast. I, I know how much work that is. But, you know, I would like to figure out how to do more to promote this idea that it's okay to not have a degree in mathematics. You're still allowed to appreciate what is so cool and interesting about computer science. Like, it's a club that everyone is allowed into. And that's what we're trying to do with the Computation Club in London is to do something that's a little bit more you're able to eat potato chips and drink a soft drink, then you're welcome to come along and hang out with us while we try and figure out what the page for where the jelly stains go in the little schema is is there for. You know, I, I, I'd be very, very happy if I felt like I had come up with a way to get more regular computer programmers to enjoy things like type systems and formal semantics and all those things that sound, they all have very, very forbidding names. But I think that those ideas are all really fun and interesting and that you're kind of missing out. If you've done the hard work to learn how to write a computer program and you can do it well enough that someone will pay you money to do it, then I feel like there's this whole smorgasbord of really cool, fun stuff that you could be learning about and getting excited about if only someone could provoke you into doing it. And so I would really like to figure out how to provoke people into that stuff a little bit more. And I, I don't know what the answer to that is yet. I'm still enjoying not writing. This is the first time for a couple of years that I haven't had a conference talk hanging over me. And it's brilliant because it means that I can do things like come on a podcast instead of like frowning at keynote. So maybe if I take a little time to not speak at conferences, it will help me to figure out, oh, you know, I should write a book or I should start some kind of misguided movement to try and persuade JavaScript programmers to implement type system or something. I, I don't know. But that's all I can think of to say is that I would like to do more. I don't know what form that should take yet. I don't want to wear out my welcome in the Ruby community as someone who is constantly banging on about computer science -y stuff. I feel that I might have already done the big main things that people are curious about, and it might be diminishing returns from this point onwards. So I would like to figure out a way to keep beating that drum, but without people getting sick of me doing it. So the Understanding Computation Group, is that something that you have a site or a Google group or something that people can follow along virtually and just say, what book is the Computation Club reading for the next two weeks? And if I want to kind of have a resource of list that you all are putting together and be able to, even if I can't participate there, I can participate on my own and maybe take some guidance from the things that you all are looking at? Yeah, of course. I mean, as far as possible, we try to do everything online and in the open. That's limited by our own enthusiasm for writing stuff up. But yes, we have a website. It's computation.club. So hopefully that's easy to remember. And we have a Slack team that is open to anyone. So anyone who's interested in this stuff can just go ahead. And if you go to the website, you can just click on a button. 
type in your email address, you'll get invited to the Slack team. We have a mailing list. Every time we meet, we try to write up the meeting on our wiki. It's all on GitHub. And we write sort of accidentally, we've ended up generating a lot of software as part of every book that we've read. We have found the best way for us to cement our own understanding of ideas is to implement them. So we have a GitHub organization, which is called Computation Club, and that's got a lot of, it's probably not very meaningful to anyone else. But if, for example, if you have read the uh, From Nan to Tetris book, then if you go on our GitHub organization, we have implemented like all of the pieces of that. So we have an end-to-end implementation of a high-level language compiler, which compiles it down to some virtual machine bytecode. We have a translator that translates that virtual machine bytecode into assembler. We have an assembler that assembles that assembler down into a machine code. And we have an in-browser implementation of the CPU that will emulate that CPU in your browser and let you run that high-level program that you compiled. So we have as part of reading the book, we built an end-to-end toolchain for all of the pieces in that book. And I think we all found that incredibly entertaining and enlightening, and we wouldn't have understood it in the same way if we hadn't done that. So yeah, by all means, um, anyone, either you or anyone who's listening to this is more than welcome to come and try to make sense of the meeting notes that we post and the little pieces of software that we release. And, you know, it would be incredibly exciting for me if someone said that they wanted to start a computation club in on the other side of the world. That would be amazing, although I don't know what <laughs> I don't know what I or anyone else in the London club could actually do to facilitate that. But, you know, if there was a computation club in every major city, I would feel like that would be good enough. I could retire happy then, but I don't know how I would make that happen. But yeah, please, anyone who wants to join in, go ahead and join in and you can read about what book we're going to read next and watch us agonize over whether we should read another long book or whether we should just try reading a, a different classic paper every week or whether we should give up up and just make our own JavaScript packaging system or build tool or, or whatever it is. I'm going to be trying to find that site and Slack group to join in and just at least keep an eye on what's going on because I figure it sounds like a bunch of good resources just to know about, if nothing else. Great. Like your Nan to Tetris book. That sounds something very intriguing. I don't know right offhand when I would get to it, but to know about it and have that on the long-term wish list of things to read sounds fantastic. Is there anything else you want to plug or recommendations you want to promote to people? I know you also said you're not speaking at any conferences. Is there any conferences you're going to be at just as an attendee that people could find you? Is there places for people to find you or just what else do you want to let the audience know about at this point? Well, okay. To answer that question, I don't think I am going to any conferences. I'm taking a conference vacation, so I'm not going to be at any conferences for the rest of this year. And I don't have anything lined up for next year. You can find me on Twitter. I'm Tom Stewart. And my website is codon.com, C-O-D-O-N.com. And on there is a bunch of, every time I give a conference talk, I do try to turn it into a written article. So there's pretty much every talk I've given, more or less, there is a fairly comprehensive written version of it. So anyone who's interested in this kind of stuff, if you want to find me, then go to my website and go and have a look at the stuff that I've written about. A lot of the things that I've mentioned here today, I've kind of given a talk about and I've written up and I've tried my best to explain it. There's a bunch of slightly more esoteric stuff on there as well about other aspects of thinking about either mathematics or creativity or whatever else. I'm desperately trying to think of, you said, is there anything I want to plug? I mean, the only thing, this is my mistake. This is why I'm never going to be commercially successful. Um, the, the only thing I can think of to plug is that I am writing a little ebook at the moment 
it's called how to write a web application in Ruby, which I can imagine could not be any less appealing to the listenership of your podcast. But I am trying to, the point of this ebook is to try to, in the same way as I said about trying to explain things, mathematical things to people who don't have a mathematical background, this book is about trying to explain the very notion of a web application and to try and get people who have never had any exposure to web applications other than through using a framework to try and get them to understand all of the little pieces that make that machine work. So the book is, we start from scratch. What is a web application? It's something that will receive HTTP requests. So we have a little look at the HTTP specification. I show you how to create a listening TCP port in a Ruby program and then how to read bytes off of that socket and then how to interpret those bytes as an HTTP request and how to parse out the request method and the headers and all of that stuff. And then I show how to build an HTTP response and how to construct a SQL query to send to the database and how to render a string as a template and do all of that stuff that, you know, how to route incoming requests to the right part of the program. So I, you know, through a process of like I did in understanding computation of saying, well, there's this thing called a deterministic finite automaton and let's make one of them from scratch. This is doing the same kind of thing with the slightly less academic notion of a web application. So if anyone is interested in that, I haven't finished it yet. I'm going to try and finish it this year, but that's at rubywebapp.com. So if anyone wants to go plug in their email address there, then I promise I will email you at some point in the future when that book is done. And if you're interested in learning about all of the nuts and bolts of what is it that Rails or Django or whatever other web framework you're familiar with actually does under the hood, this is an attempt to explain that in a similar style to how I explained undecidability and understanding computation, which has also got a website computationbook.com. If you think that sounds interesting, then you should go and have a look at that. There's a sample chapter about the formal semantics of programming languages. So if you're interested, you could go and have a look at that. I literally have nothing else to plug. Sorry, that's it. (laughs) So do you have any calls to action you want to give the listeners? If you don't have anything else to plug or anything you want to ask of the listeners just in general? Well... I would certainly welcome anyone's, if anyone was listening to this, when I went off on that long rant about how I feel that I would like more people to engage with this side of the world of computers and programming, I would very much like to hear from anyone who has constructive suggestions about how we can do this. One of the people who I tremendously admire is Brett Victor, who has done so much good work in the last few years talking about Direct manipulation, and he has been extremely focused in his attempts to communicate the benefits of direct manipulation to a very wide audience of people. And it's sort of astonishing to me how influential he has been just through what amounts to really quite a short amount of time. If you took all of Brett Victor's conference talks and played them back to back, you could probably watch them all in an afternoon. It's certainly shorter than watching a season of Game of Thrones or something like that. And yet with that chronologically short contribution, he has managed to really influence a huge number of people and how they think about, in his case, his area is how people think about writing programs and how people think about using computers more generally as assistive tools for creativity and as tools for thought. And he has managed to find a really, really smart way to characterize that mission that he's on and to talk about it in a way that people immediately engage with and that people are very, um, I don't think anyone needs to be bullied once they've seen one of his talks. They go away and they build, like Chris Granger went away and built Lighttable and now he's building a new thing called Eve and all of this amazing stuff has just fallen out of 
what to me seems like one person's attempt to get everyone to care about something that he thinks is important. And if I could be a thousandth as much of an influence, or if I could have a thousandth of Brett Victor's talent in encouraging people that there is something fundamentally interesting about computation and about computer science that we should all be taking advantage of because we have access to it as programmers. It's something that we are uniquely positioned to be able to appreciate and enjoy and understand. So if any listener out there has got an idea saying, well, you know, what you should really do is X, Y, Z, then please go to my website, click on the link and email me and tell me what it is that you think that I or that we together could be doing to promote the idea of, for want of a better word, functional geekery in the wider programming community. I think that it would be a better world to work in as a programmer if more people were willing to entertain the idea of abstraction and of mathematical thought. And, you know, if people weren't afraid of talking about referential transparency, like referential transparency should not be a dirty word, right? We should all be saying it. Let's all say it out loud, right? So yeah, I'd love to hear from anyone who is like-minded, who has got an idea about how we can undertake that sort of Brett Victor style transformation of the landscape of imperative computer programmers who have never been led down this route of really, really caring about dependent type systems or whatever it might be. Well, that sounds fantastic. And I'm looking forward to seeing what kind of feedback people give you. So you covered where people can find you online. Is there anything else that you forgot besides the website for the books, your website and Twitter? Is there anything else that people should be checking out besides those and computation.club? No, that's pretty much it. I mean, I have just published, or I'm just about to publish a post about, I recently at the London Ruby user group, I gave a talk about declarative programming and about implementing microcanron, which is a functional core of a relational language in Ruby. And that was another attempt to try and get people to be interested in thinking about computation in different ways. So that's the only other thing I would mention is that the most recent thing I've done is I gave a talk about microcanron. I tried to make it as clear and accessible as possible within the constraints. I don't know how successful I was, but if you're interested in relational programming or you've read the microcanron paper and you're interested in seeing it implemented in a language other than Scheme, then you can, if you go to my site, then hopefully you can read my write-up of me interpreting the microcanron paper in a modern programming language. But other than that, I think that's all I've got to pitch right now. Well, that sounds good. I'd like to give a giant thank you to David Belcher for the logo. And once again, thank you very much, Tom, for giving your time to join me today. Thanks for having me. It was a great pleasure. And I've been excited and grinning as you've been talking about this stuff because (laughs) I've got an interest in this too, but you seem to be doing it and expressing it much more elegantly and doing a better job about getting the word out there as well than I have been just just in general too. So. So, yeah, it was a great pleasure talking to you today, and we might have to get you on. I'll probably have to get you on again at one point to talk a little bit more about some of the deeper type information and your other kind of research background that you've had and experience with OCaml and get a little bit more into some of the deeper topics on another episode in the future. Yeah, I'd love that. We'll put that on the list to catch up at some point, maybe in a maybe in a year or so, and we can talk about any feedback that you've gotten from listeners as well on. Great. Until next time, this has been Functional Geekery.